Welcome to the Be Dead While Alive stream satsang. <laughs> Brought to you from the misty mountains of Costa Rica, from the Sat Yoga Ashram. Welcome to all of those who are attending the satsang online. We're in the midst of our annual rainy season retreat here at the ashram. And we've been in relative silence for the last couple of weeks. And with intense classes and meditations. So I'm sure that those who are here in this local space, as well as those listening online will have interesting questions. No doubt profound questions about your own journey to self-realization. But actually, the whole process and the whole understanding is extremely simple and really doesn't need to give rise to any questions, should actually put all questions to an end. I think the ancient metaphor that's most useful is simply that of the drop of rainwater that returns to the ocean. Perhaps a little more accurate would be a bubble of foam on a wave on the ocean. And when that ego bubble pops, there is only the ocean. And there was never anything but the ocean. And so if we understand consciousness to be an infinite ocean, an infinite field that is beyond time and space, in which the universe appears, but that appearance is nothing more than the foam on a wave within that ocean, then we understand that we have never left the original true consciousness that has no boundaries, no separate units. And all we need to do is let the bubble pop and we will realize that the only illusion of separation came from our own invention of a membrane of a bubble that was made of nothing other than the H2O of the ocean. And in that popping of the ego bubble, there is immediate, instantaneous release without struggle, without resistance, without difficulty. And the popping of the bubble is simply a matter of stopping the process of inner chatter. That's all the bubble is made of, is 
subvocal talk. Talk that tries to convince itself that it is just a bubble, an ego, a separate being, different from the universal consciousness. But a time comes when that illusion can no longer be maintained. And in the last moments or the last stage of the process before the bubble decides to pop, it will go through a tremendous chaotic up and down struggle with itself because of the fear of its illusory death, the fear of the unknown, fear of the infinite, the fear of love, the fear of joy, the fear of overwhelming power. But a moment will come when the bubble will pop and that is known as grace. And the more that the ego yearns for that grace, the sooner that it comes. Because the love for that infinite consciousness from which we derive our being and is our being, the love for that is also the love of that, the love that is that. And the love and the wisdom and the light and the power all come together as the membrane of the ego's self-talk dissolves in silence. The freedom and the peace that comes with letting go of all of the tension, the anxieties, the negative patterns of self-talk that include self-hatred and disgust, anger, insecurity, fantasies of lust that cannot be fulfilled or lead always to disappointment and karma that brings ever more suffering. Once the soul has been through all of its possibilities of self-expression and self-discovery and self-exploration of reality at the level of ego, it discovers that all of it leads only to a dead end of exhaustion and of despair. And a moment comes when one wants only release, only liberation, only freedom from one's own mind. And when that yearning is single-minded and wholehearted, then grace is given.
and the ego disappears. But what emerges is that power of presence that is not empty of being, but that is filled, filled with the power of eternal truth, eternal light, eternal presence. And a power of goodness, a power of moral strength, a power of understanding and compassion. But beyond all of that, comes the power to redream the world that is realized all along to have been one's dream and not a reality that opposes one and that one needs to conquer or flee from or have a paranoid relationship with or a feeling of disappointment. but that one is free to redream the world in its most perfect form, its most loving, its most beautiful form. Because consciousness is the source of beauty, of goodness, of love, of light. And because there is no otherness, there are no divisions and separations in consciousness, in its real nature. The dream that is created from that field that has itself been liberated from egos and their fantasies becomes a world of peace and a world of the perfection of the potentiality of consciousness in manifestation. And we gain the gift to realize that we are that. And so the attainment of liberation from the illusion of ego is the attainment of a kind of joy that the ego can never know because it is also the ending of all the karma, all the suffering, all the weakness, all the inability to change the patterns of self-destructive behavior and the ability to live free and to share the absolute bliss of that freedom with all because all are recognized as manifestations of the one self. The one light. And now in this moment of the death of a civilization that has formed its way of consciousness into the most degraded form of egos, with the most corrupt 
ways of treating one another, the most lustful and perverse and the most conflicted and violent. We have fallen to the lowest level of the ego's possibilities. And therefore it is urgent that we release ourselves from the curse of our own egoic desires that have brought about suffering for every being on the planet. And we have that obligation as well as the yearning from within to be free and to transmit the truth of consciousness, of oneness, of freedom to all beings by becoming living models and avatars of that supreme presence. This is the function of an ashram to help to accelerate the maturation of consciousness so that it can make that choice deliberately, determinedly, consciously, and finally, decisively, to pop the bubble of its own private life and become one with the life of the cosmos, the life of the Godhead, the life, the love, the light of the oneself. Not everyone is ready for such a path and such a metamorphosis from ego to self. Very few, in fact, are willing to make that sacrifice, a sacrifice that is all gain and no loss, but still from the ego's point of view, it cannot reconcile itself to its own disappearance. And so it is only those mature souls, old souls, souls who feel that need for liberation and that moral calling to be of service to the world during this time of suffering and degradation and destructiveness. Before that world dies of its own destructive impulses, to bring the seeds of a new world, a new age, a new consciousness, into being. And those who are called to such a task, the great work of alchemy, those who are called to such a transformation should know that this community is here at the service of all who seek to live in that highest truth.
and to offer a refuge from the hellish world of Kali Yuga. For those who have the wisdom to understand that a different world is not only possible, but is the will of that supreme intelligence that is bringing us to the singularity, the omega point, that will be the end of one world and the beginning of another. And those whose consciousness is able to reach the level of the world that is to be born now will be those who are able to usher others in through that stargate into the next cycle of time and to be reborn with new forms in that beautiful kingdom that all religions have postulated and prophesied and make it a reality. But to do that, we must make our own nature real, authentic, true, and abide in that truth, in that strength, in that wisdom, without falling back into the illusory and defiling attitudes and behavior patterns of an ego so that the vibrational frequency of this new consciousness becomes manifest in such a way that a morphogenetic field in which this energy of divine love and self-realization is transmitted to all beings so that everyone has the opportunity to link to that level of consciousness and find their way to the ultimate goal of human existence. May we have the generosity of spirit to attain this goal and to share it with all through the opening of our hearts in total and unconditional love that is free of fear and free of desire. And that offers that power, that luminous shining strength that can enable others to follow through the popping of the quantum wave function that brought egos into existence and effortlessly and painlessly enable consciousness again to be free of that illusory shell that has prevented us from knowing who we are.
May we gain that freedom now through recognizing that we are already that and have never been anything but that infinite source and field of consciousness. that is the one supreme being that authentically can dream, sustain, and govern a world in peace and harmony and bring the current chaos to an end with the greatest blessings that can be imagined. The more free we are of the ego illusion, the more we shall be tapped into that knowledge, that intelligence, that strength, that love to function in the service of the one and bring this transformation about in the quickest way that brings the suffering of all to an end and the redemption to full attainment. This is not only our destiny, but it is the deepest yearning of the hearts of every being. If we will only have the courage to dive into our heart, we will know this truth. And in our surrender to the truth and the source of the truth, we shall be free from all of those negative thoughts that have enchained us to the wheel of birth and death and rebirth and enable us to know the bliss of liberation. May we Recognize that this truth is eternal. It is here and now. We are under the jurisdiction of the Supreme Lord who has commanded this transformation to be underway and who guides and directs it from the subtlety of the innermost self. and whose amnesty for all who suffer from the burden of guilt or shame or sin of any kind is granted through that selfless action of surrender to the will of God. May we be wise enough to take advantage of this beautiful offering 
and open the prison gates in which we have dwelt and live as free manifestations of the divine self. Namaste. Floor is open, either locally or cybernetically. Please feel free to ask any questions or share whatever comments you wish to make. She can ask them herself, no? No, I can't put them in words. I forget everything. So better you read it. <laughs> Otherwise, I have to. Well, that means you put it in words already. <laughs> Don't be shy, Kirsten. You tell me what your question yeah, is. So it's again what, what makes a human, what makes the human experience human to all the yugas. So even the yugas where no ego is, what is the human experience? Well, it depends on what you mean by human, because in the Sat Yuga, we are divine beings, not really human beings. The human is a fall, and the human comes from the combination of humus, the dirt, the, the mud of the earth that the body is made of, and the manas, the mind. And so the human is a fallen state in which the mind is identified with the body, with matter, not with the supreme light and love and intelligence of God. So it is a, a, a very superhuman experience that we have in the golden age and in the silver age that the human ego cannot understand. And that's why it is told about in myths and legends, but it cannot ever be part of history because the, the, the world itself is different. It's not a material world, you see. We think there is such a thing as matter, but it's only the projection of the density of ego consciousness that produces that illusion. And in the, the world of, of higher yugas, uh, it, it is a world in which there is infinite magic and miraculous possibilities because matter itself is spirit. And, and so there are incredible powers that we cannot imagine and uh, incredible relationships uh, with the cosmos as a whole that cannot now be understood. And a, and a level of consciousness that is telepathically united with all others. So the, the human that feels like a separate egoic material being is an entirely uh, different uh, quality of consciousness. 
that uh, that because of its finite uh, separateness cannot understand the bliss of the unity with all that is. So there is a, a, a fall into that level in which there is still a capacity to intellectually understand that we must have come from this higher level and that we have fallen. But yet the ego, which is based on self-deception, tries to prove otherwise. It wants to believe that we have risen from uh, one-celled animals. It wants to believe in Darwinian evolution and that the world is meaningless and random chance. It, it wants to believe in progress and that we are now at the highest level uh, ever because we have iPhones and uh, all kinds of other meaningless gadgets. That, uh, that make our consciousness even more chaotic and separate from the self. So we have deceived ourselves in so many ways that most egos can't even imagine or believe in the understanding that we have come from a much higher level of consciousness that has entropically fallen into the level that we are now in, in which we identify as separate beings with material forms. And therefore, we cannot uh, grasp it until we have done a sufficient amount of meditation, sufficiently deep that we have raised our consciousness beyond the level of, of the body identification and can be able to grok from a direct perception of, of reality that transcends the ego, what is possible to us that seems impossible from the ego's illusory position in the finite frame of reference. So therefore, it's, it's not easy to say uh, what is the, uh, the thread because the thread is actually created by what we could call the soul the soul that goes through these different lifetimes, these different incarnations of its uh, intelligence with different kinds of bodies in different ages that finally become dense and materialized in the Dwapar and the Kali Yuga that we are now at the end of. And because of that density, uh, we have even lost belief in the soul, let alone in the Holy Spirit or in the supreme, infinite, uh, unified consciousness. Ironically, it is science itself that is now bringing us back to an understanding of the unified field and of the entanglement of particles and, and of energies that uh, can cross the cosmos instantaneously with scalar waves and various other uh, concepts that are coming into uh, the scientific paradigm. But the, the average ego or even the physicist cannot yet understand that this pertains to a new potential level of consciousness that will transform us. It won't just enable us to create rocket ships or other kinds of material technology, but will bring about a, an entirely qualitatively different psychotechnology that will change uh, the 
the, the very fabric of reality into a new form. Well, you see, in, in the religious traditions, they speak about celestial realms, right, beyond the earth realm. Well, the earth realm itself will be that celestial realm. It, there will no longer be an earth as we know it because the vibrational frequency will change. So it will still be the earth, but it will not be the earth as it is now consciously perceived through the five senses of an ego and interpreted through its finite frame of reference. And it's because we don't grok that this is all consciousness. It's not matter. It's not made of particles. Uh, it, it is consciousness itself, and therefore it has infinite potentiality of transformation. We, we cannot, with the ego mind that believes, oh, this is hard and solid and it's, it's created by cause and effect over millions of years or evolutionary processes, et cetera, et cetera, that, uh, that we cannot magically transform that world in a higher state of consciousness. So therefore, this understanding eludes the ego mind. Of everything. Everything, but if everything is so, um, happening sim simultaneous, there is no time. So, what makes the change, the vibration of humanity? Or well, it, the vibration of the ego today is what creates the illusion of linear time. And so, yes, that linear time is a reality for the ego. But once we are in that higher level of consciousness, then we will be abiding in an eternal consciousness. But that can be lost again, and the illusion of time returns. But eternity and time are actually not two different things. It just seems like we are now in time, and that time is the representation of eternity. But actually, it is uh, no different than eternity, but it is perceived as time by an ego that is in its own linear mode of perception because it is uh, inhabited by language and therefore it can perceive only through linguistic categories and the syntax of duality, subject-object separation, and, and therefore it cannot know that eternal presence that is non-dual. That's why we have to do the work of silencing the mind so that the direct perception by the self becomes once again revealed. This is the meaning of the revelation, the apocalypse, the revelation of the perception of the world as the manifestation of God. And that changes everything instantaneously. We have a question from Didi. Mm -hmm. Hello, Didi. <laughs> she says, Namaste, Shunya. So blessed to hear your words and to have the challenge of following your teachings. Her question is, how do we know if we're an old soul to be, to be more able to attain consciousness? 
You're an old soul if you're attracted to this kind of discourse, and if you're attracted to meditation, and if you're attracted to liberation from the wheel of birth and death. The more that your interests and obsessions are about the physical, phenomenal plane, the more you're interested in money, and the more you're interested in sensual pleasure, and the more you're interested in artificial forms of altered states of consciousness rather than the real thing through uh, transcendence of the ego, that will be a barometer of whether you are a younger soul who is still uh, more interested in the experience possible within the phenomenal illusion than interested in return to the noumenal reality. The older soul has already exhausted that. It's done with it. It wants something more. And, and it wants the transcendence of its identification with the body. Very old souls do not care about the body. They don't have much attachment, if any, to biological family. Their attachment, their love is for God, for the self, for Buddha, for the supreme understanding and reality that transcends time and human life. And the more that that is the focus of one's yearning and uh, one's uh, attention and study and uh, meditative action, then you will know that you are a soul who has completed the, the cycle of your uh, incarnation and now it is time to return to the source from which we have come. And so there will be a natural settling out of uh, those older souls from the younger souls. The very young ones enjoy Kali Yuga. They enjoy the computers and the iPhones and uh, all of the, the rest, the, the flying in airplanes and going on vacations in so-called exotic places. They even enjoy wars and uh, making money on the stock market and all those kinds of things and uh, their interest in uh, transformation and transcendence is very little, if at all. So it's, uh, it's a very clear situation of old or young, but the real question is, is one ready to graduate from this level of the school? Because there are higher levels to go than the one we are in now. And it's even among old souls, not everyone is ready to graduate. It's that that will be the difference between liberation or uh, going around one more time and uh, enjoying the full spectrum of possibility within this plane, but not fully transcending it to the next. I loved your comment about an ashram is a place for the acceleration of the maturation of mm -hmm. consciousness. Having felt very immature most of my life, I agree that uh, this experiment works. I think my question is not really a question because you answer it when you mention this comment that was brought up yesterday as well about free will, that, that with the exercising of your free will, you can instantaneously, in a way, mature your consciousness. But the lingering question I still have is, maybe because of all the clinical reading I do, the psychoanalytic reading, 
I feel there seems to be these things that have to be in place. Like you have to be able to contain your emotions, have a container. You have to be able to have a strong ego that even knows what its desire is to then renounce that desire. Like there's many, I could list a hundred things that have to be in order for one's mind to even approach yoga. But is that real? I mean, or is it that what you said once, which is someone like Ramana, or we don't know, but possibly went through every single stage lightning fast, that you could mm -hmm. potentially gain containment, know your desire, renounce it, drop it. Sure. Well, he's the proof of that. And as he himself said, he did most of that work in his previous lifetime. And so he was already at the final phase, and therefore it could be very easy for him. Even so, he had to go through a last uh, level of teaching to, be, to graduate, but he did pass the test and graduate. So uh, everyone does indeed have to attain that. But the, that's the reason for the Dharma and the vows. Uh, those vows require self-containment, sacrifice, and all of the other uh, qualities that you mentioned in order to be able to fulfill them and to lead a, a life that will be able to be so structured and so focused that one will be able to attain liberation. And that's why you have very few people who want to live in an ashram. They would love to live in an eco-village where they don't have to have the dharma. They have the benefit of having an ashram nearby, but they can live their lives within the ego. But that would not help them achieve liberation. It would only dilute the, the work of the ashram itself and, uh, and would create uh, uh, more of a conflict between those who have had the strength to make the sacrifice, seeing others enjoying a lot of at least phenomenal benefits uh, of being in both worlds. But you do have to make a choice. You can't be in two different boats. If you try to have one leg in the ego and one in the self, you're going to fall. And it won't be into the ocean of consciousness, but into the ocean of karma. And uh, it won't be nice. So I, I think that uh, the, the way that the ashram is structured, the way uh, that one has to vow oneself to live a life of, of a great sacrifice of most egoic pleasures in order to, uh, and sovereignty of the ego, autonomy. And the reason why most people don't want to live here is you have to be under the control of the Dharma. It's not a tyrannical control of an ego, but it's, it's, this, it's uh, admitting that one's life is, is unmanageable, just like they admit in the 12-step programs, but we're going to let God manage our life, not one another in, in, uh, in trying to figure things out from the ego level, but with the wisdom and with the power and the vibrational frequency of divine love and wisdom, to be able to reach that level. And if one doesn't have that yearning and that understanding that this is the highest way of life and it's worth making those sacrifices because of what can be gained only through that method, then those are the old souls who'll find their way to an ashram like this. So one, one more question on the old soul. That was exactly what I was gonna mention when you said Older souls don't have much attachment to family or body. I wrote, not much attachment to family or Buddha. And I've asked you this before. It was a slip. Um, what does this mean Not when you see another Buddha in the road? Oh, yes. Well, that, that, that's a, a, a Zen uh, 
aphorism, which just says, uh, don't simply worship the Buddha and someone else. Realize you are also the Buddha. Right? So it's not about being violent toward Buddhas, uh, <laughs> but it's uh, not settling for being a spectator of others becoming Buddhas and, and leaving you in the dust. Uh, become the Buddha yourself. The more the ego yearns for grace, the sooner the ego bubble pops. And I was wondering what is the difference between kind of an egoic wanting to uh, achieve some state of liberation and the actual kind of yearning that mm -hmm. makes the ego bubble pop. Yeah, this is a very good question. In the beginning, it may be, or at least seem, that it's the ego dabbling as a dilettante in spirituality and wanting little bits of, uh, of what uh, seem to be signifiers of higher consciousness. And one will accumulate uh, those kinds of uh, uh, things and events and uh, activities one will go to meditation retreats, one will have certain crystals in their room, one will go through various uh, kinds of uh, plant medicine ceremonies, one will do all kinds of things that will give the illusion of reaching higher consciousness. But then at a certain moment it becomes realized that one is still stuck in the ego, none of these things have done uh, anything to raise one's consciousness outside or beyond the uh, the level in which there is still suffering and negativity and behavior patterns that one is disgusted with, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's when uh, the ego begins to turn inward more deeply and the soul takes over the search. The soul's booty becomes activated and awakened. This is the beginning of Buddhahood. The awakening of the booty then leads to becoming the Buddha. The booty is that capacity for discernment that can tell when you're in ego mind and thinking thoughts that are not good for you and when you're thinking thoughts that are good for you and that lead to going beyond thought. And gradually, as the booty takes over from the ego, then the real progress is made very quickly. But at first, there will be a struggle between ego and soul, and that struggle has to be won by the soul. And the more that, uh, that one's yearning reaches an authenticity, both because you, you have that taste for the infinite and the disgust with the dependency of the ego on the other and on things and on uh, events of, of partial or impermanent types of uh, transformations of consciousness, the more that the the center of gravity, you could say, of consciousness will shift from ego to soul, and then the soul, the ego will be absorbed into the soul, and the soul will easily surrender and be absorbed back into the spirit or the self, and, and the process will become complete. But in the beginning, yes, that, and that's why every tradition talks about it being a war, a struggle, battle between the devas and the asuras, the Bhagavad Gita battle and uh, Kurukshetra, all of these different uh, ways of uh, understanding the internal conflict that comes when one realizes 
that one no longer wants to live in the life of the ego because it's scripted, it's programmed, and it has no free will. You see, even the realization that you have free will to not be in the ego only comes when you have glimpsed the soul and the booty has become awakened enough to recognize that the ego mind is in a state of self-deception and it has no free will. But that's because it is a character playing a part, a script, that has been written, in fact, by the soul, and the soul has the ability to change the script. And then that script becomes one of a being who is a saintly, yearning being for the Holy Spirit, and then one will achieve that transformation easily. So changing the script and then acting in accord with this higher way of living will easily lead to the opening of the heart and then the power of the self and that supreme love and, and wisdom and desire for liberation will then take over and guide the soul to the final stage. The soul takes over. It's not really a, a choice. Well, you're, you're like reeling in a fish, you know, that's very big. And sometimes you have to let it out a little bit, and then sometimes you pull it in. And then when you land the ego into the soul boat, then it's very easy to, to go to the rest of the way of the journey. The soul has to be eaten completely, devoured by God. Yes. I think it's an old question. It's about, like, in the East at least, the householder and the monk. Like, and can the householder type find realization? Yeah, of course. It makes no difference. Right. So can you speak on that? Just because of what you were just saying, it sounded like you have to go to a national and you have to. No, it's not that you have to, but you know, most householders don't want to achieve liberation. That's why they're householders and not monks. But if you happen to be a householder and realize you want liberation, and these days in most houses that's pretty easy to achieve, uh, then you can do it without having to give up responsibilities that you now may have to children and to family and, and uh, others, that, other kinds of social commitments. You can do that, but it's much harder because you have less time and there's more attention and more need to, uh, to be there in an egoic way for others. Few people will understand what you're doing. Why are you sitting in a room alone meditating instead of playing soccer and all these other uh, ways that you will uh, become a misfit as a householder. Until, unless you can convince your husband or wife to join you in this and bring the whole household along, that can sometimes happen. But uh, otherwise, it's a, it's a much more difficult path. But of course, it can be done. And, and it's, if, if, you are, if your yearning is great, you can do it in any situation. So yeah, you don't need to, uh, to live in an ashram. But you may want to visit an ashram occasionally, get recharged, and uh, be inspired to continue the journey and get to higher states. So uh, it can be done by any, anyone, anywhere, uh, regardless of conditions. Mm -hmm. It's also like the age we're living in. That's why there's only a few of these. That's correct, a few sages. People that are lost going to these. Yeah. There aren't, those are all dead now, too, you know. Yeah. 
There's very few living sages in the world. Age, it would be normal to be in this pool. Yeah, of course. That would be normal. Yeah, even subnormal in the Satyuga age, yes. So it's just we're in a time when this seems miraculous, mm -hmm. but it's just because of the relativeness of That's right. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. A question from CK. They ask Do you think we will remember Kali Yuga? when we die physically to this body at graduation? Oh, at graduation, no. Why would you want to? No, you'll be in the light and the eternal presence and, and you will realize that th it never even existed. There was no Kali Yuga. It was only in the imagination of an ego that never existed. And uh, that, uh, that delusion will disappear forever, thank God. Yeah. A question from Keela. Hmm. Hey, Keela. Nice to know you're listening. She says, how do we live in the world outside of an ashram and devote towards this evolution? Mm -hmm. Well, that was kind of what we started to deal with in the last question. I think if your attitude is one of wanting to live a sacred life, you can make your life uh, sacred in any situation that you're in, but you have to be very strong, you have to set boundaries, you have to let people know that your values are uh, for liberation, not simply for sensual pleasure and small talk and going to the movies and doing things that most people in the Kali Yuga world are into and have the, the strength to continue despite the fact that you may not have much of a support group behind you. And uh, the more that you are willing uh, to do that, the more you will be respected by, by others who see your change and your uh, higher level of happiness and of wisdom, and more people will come to you for your support and uh, we'll wonder, where are you getting this invisible support that we don't seem to have? And you will, you will be able to transmit that to others. And you will find that other people who are on the same wavelength will somehow find you and you'll find them. And, uh, and gradually a kind of a sangha can develop even in a, a householder situation that will, uh, will create an energy field that will enable all the boats to get lifted into the high tide of liberation. So just keep going with it, have faith, have, uh, have a practice that you do religiously, to use that word, perhaps in a, uh, a sense of, of total discipline, and uh, to, uh, to not look back. And if you keep going forward, you'll find that you will be in a trajectory of ascension that will lead to liberation faster than your ego could imagine. Anyone else? Ah, yes. In, in your teaching uh, this week of, uh, about the fire of sacrifice, mm -hmm. you mentioned um, that um, what is lost in the fire of sacrifice is the illusion of suffering. Mm -hmm. um, and the more the ego craves to be free of its suffering, the more suffering it creates. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? 
most egos who are content with the Kali Yuga life don't realize how much they are suffering because they're in a state of denial and a state of projection uh, and, and a state of, uh, of a false compensatory uh, egoic mode of operation in which they suppress the parts of their ego that are, are suffering. So they can put up a false front with a smiley face and tell other people how happy they are and how well they're doing and how much money they have and all of that, right? So the ego can do that as long as it's willing to live in bad faith in an inauthentic life. But as soon as you begin to want to be authentic and you do enter into that fire, then the more those defenses and those denials and those uh, bad faith forms of uh, self-deception are burned away and you have to face the suffering and it increases. And, and the more that you put yourself in the position of being separate from what you want to be, then the agony of that separation is greater. And this is why it behooves one who has made this uh, decision to sit in the fire of sacrifice, to realize that you're not someone in a fire, but you are the fire. The fire is your consciousness. And the sacrifice of the ego is not a loss. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not a form of suffering, but it is, in fact, bliss. But as long as you're, you're within the frame of reference of an ego desiring to reach the bliss, then there will be more and more agony of, of not knowing you're already there because you're still identifying with what has to be burned rather than with the fire that's doing the burning. But in fact, that's what you are. And it's that realization that brings liberation. Okay? Mm -hmm. On that point, thank you. Um, so there seems to be this awakening to the comic situation of suffering mm. and um, so in this uh, yearning to you know burn the burn the ego mm -hmm. and its whole house down um, that was uh, very prominent in my own process mm. and I noticed now perhaps it's come from this look also that I've been noticing in Sri Ramana's pictures. It's kind of like a side glance. <laughs> and he kind of is looking up. And it's just has captured um, this consciousness. <laughs> and, um, and it comes to mind that somehow, I don't know, it's perhaps I'm linking it, the sense of being transcendent of this ego sacrificial plane of consciousness mm -hmm. that has brought a great feeling of, of liberation and of laughter in mm -hmm. this consciousness as I have focused mm -hmm. for the first time asked <clears throat> I've seen it before but asked what is it communicating mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and just sitting there because you know I can figure it out and accept that now I have this uh, sensing that it's this laughter that 
No, I agree with you. I think uh, what you see in Ramana's face is that he gets the joke, you know, the cosmic joke. And uh, he's on that line of, of God's sense of humor about it all and, and recognizes the unreality of all of this and isn't disturbed by any of it and realizes that there's nothing that he needs to do. He doesn't need even to teach. He doesn't need to say a word. And uh, it, everything is happening automatically as a result of the consciousness itself that he is now one with. And, and so he's, he's already liberated from any duties uh, in regard to, uh, to having to accomplish anything for God because there's no longer any separation. And so whatever happens is happening automatically, but he's in bliss and uh, not participating any longer in the illusion. Mm -hmm. We have another question from Didi. Yeah. She asks, do the vows require celibacy even in a marriage? Yes. And it's not so much a requirement as a freedom from the burden of having to engage in activity that will bring you down into a state of body identification and of, uh, of a loss of the, the power of the, the prana when, when one has remained free of, uh, uh, of the, uh, let's say, electric discharge of an orgasm for a long enough period. The, the brain gets filled with uh, extra amounts of power that allow it uh, to function at a much higher level of soul consciousness rather than ego and uh, to raise one's vibrational frequency in order to be able to uh, sublimate desire into a complete love and yearning for consummation of union with God. And that creates the ultimate orgasm called Satchitananda. And that is so much better than anything you can get from sex that people are very glad to be released from that burden of uh, misbehavior that uh, brings people down and into a disappointment into having to take care of children, uh, into uh, a, a life of, uh, of, of attachments and of, uh, uh, let's say, power struggles with other egos with whom they have become karmically enmeshed as a result of those activities, and uh, of a, a kind of uh, dependency that comes with the sense of needing uh, that kind of satisfaction being given by the other, and anger when it isn't given or given in the way one wants it, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and it creates so many problems and so many uh, conflicts between people in a marriage that I would say it's the leading cause of divorce. And, and so uh, one can, I think, only have a happy marriage if one is in a brahmachari marriage. 
and then both parties are supporting each other in the attainment of liberation. And that is a, a true uh, proof of love. And so those who love one another will want the best for the other, which means they will want uh, the liberation from body consciousness and will support their solitude and their need for the space and the time to gain that level of consciousness in which they can become avatars and serve the world in that highest way. And if both parties to the marriage can do that together, that's the, the most beautiful attainment that can be offered as a model of how we can live together in divine love. Another question from Keela. She says, can you speak about the limits of compassion and the relationship between compassion, wisdom, and the supreme? The limits of compassion. Well, compassion, to be accurate, must be integrated with dispassion. Otherwise, it, it becomes a sentimental attachment and a rescue fantasy and uh, a, a seeing of the other with, with some kind of pity or with a sense that the other is helpless and is, is a struggling ego. And by perceiving them in such a way, it actually creates uh, more uh, problems by, by giving that projection. So the ultimate compassion is to realize that the other doesn't need your compassion and to transmit that uh, to them. And if one can do that with a complete dispassion because one has oneself gone beyond the need for any help or, or compassion from any external source, then one has reached a point where the vision of unity and of, of the one self manifesting in all is able to actually uh, create an empathic response in the other so that they are able to resonate at the same level and then no longer feel that they are in the need for anyone's compassion. So to free someone from that illusion that they need help is the best help that one can give. And that help only comes from the wisdom, the truth, and the power of that supreme love and light that is already beyond uh, duality. I hope that was useful, Keila. Do you have your hand up, Baja? Yeah, go ahead. Um, this week I was uh, contemplating the two readings that you gave of uh, Ramana's students, the one, the shining, the shining one, Muruga, mm -hmm. and the one by Anomalai Swami, and it seems like they were uh, kind of expressing two different, I don't know if it's approaches or experiences on their paths, like Muruganar? Muruganar. Was saying Atma Vichara is the way, and Anamalai Swami is, didn't even meditate basically for 10 years. Um, and then he's given this transmission from Ramana. So uh, I had two questions actually. 
One, is it about kind of combining those two approaches, I guess, in a way, or picking one? Um, and then in the, in the anomaly uh, of just remembering all the time that you are the self, <clears throat> how could you kind of, it seems like a, an affirmation and a reaffirmation, so how could you be affirming or reaffirming the self if you didn't even come to the place where you could know the self through something like Atmavichara? Okay, first of all, everyone needs different medicine. If uh, Anamalai Swami had been told to sit and meditate, he would have accomplished nothing uh, because he wasn't prepared to be able to do that. What he was able to do was service. And that service on behalf of Ramana and the ashram and God <clears throat> raised his consciousness, ended his karma, brought him to a point where he was mature enough and, and ripe enough to be able to receive that one Shaktipat shot that brought him into liberation in an instant. Uh, and uh, he, so for him, that was the accurate way to go. And if he had done any other way, he wouldn't have made it. And Ramana was aware of that. And so he was able to learn to meditate while doing the very heavy labor that he was doing as uh, the, the one who was doing the construction of the buildings of the ashram. And, uh, and he, his path, his way of doing Atma Vichara, because it was that still, was actually a more difficult kind of meditation because to meditate while you're working or drawing up blueprints or doing whatever is involved in, uh, in building, it requires uh, a, a tremendous focus to be able to keep uh, the inner and the outer in alignment and everything flowing smoothly without the ego getting in the way. So he actually got very advanced training, but of, of a unique kind. And the reason why he could do this was that although he may not have had an internal direct experience through meditation of the self, he got it directly from his relationship with Ramana. So by looking into the eyes of Ramana, he recognized the self. That's why he was there and he was surrendered to the self in the form of Ramana to do whatever he was asked to do. And it was that total surrender of his own will that brought him to the state of purification where then when he was ready, he was able to immediately transcend without having to do formal meditation. Whereas Muruganer was a poet his work was to reach God through the writing out of, of the progress he was making internally and leaving uh, crumbs for the journey for those who uh, were more intellectually minded to understand what you have to do to get there and to be able to put that into such poetic beauty that a reader of, of those poems would, would realize the truth and the authenticity of this path. So he was doing another kind of service. Uh, Anomaly was building the actual buildings and, and uh, Muruganer was building the philosophy, the literature, the canon that enabled others to come to Ramana because they could read it. And some would read the writing and be liberated without even going to the ashram. 
So uh, uh, both of these kinds of service were necessary. Each one came with the ability to do those different kinds of service and were happy to do them. And Ramana was able to see what each one needed and allow them to reach fulfillment in their own unique ways. Okay, and that happens in this community as well. And so everyone has a different path that's based on the service they're doing as well as the formal meditation and the individual uh, session work, the transformation that is going to be different for everyone because of different ego structures and resistances and different ways of uh, developing their uh, capacity for expressing the truth of their being, whether it's through drama or music or some other art or some other way of serving creatively that develops that ability of the chit to be reunited with the ananda and to, uh, to, to make one as an instrument of, of that divine beauty that in itself is, uh, is a manifestation of godliness. And so everyone in their functions in the ashram is uh, participating in the bringing about of a city of God. And that in itself makes us in, into that level of consciousness in which godliness is natural to us and is shared with all those who come to visit. Didi said in response to your answer, wow, thank you for the answer, Shunya. Right, Brahmachari. <laughs> it's about time, Didi. <laughs> and we have a question from Gaetan. Mm -hmm. Gaetan, welcome from Quebec, yes. What's your question? He says, are there obstacles in the transition from soul to the self? Yes. There are two obstacles. One is that the soul's capacity of symbolic knowledge becomes uh, a temptation to develop further than necessary for the attainment of the self. And one uh, can fall into the... Uh, desire uh, to use the increased intelligence of the soul to become a great philosopher or therapist or uh, a guide of some kind that still remains within the framework of duality. One also becomes someone who is very capable of being very loving and, and creating uh, beautiful relationships with others very altruistic, a model citizen, someone who will be looked up to as, as one who is uh, worthy of respect and honor, etc. And it's easy uh, to be tempted to settle for being seen in such a very nice way by others. And one has to reach a, a point where you don't care how you are seen and you have no interest in uh, developing uh, philosophical nuances and sophistication and subtlety uh, to impress others. Once you have reached the understanding 
that the symbolic can take you to. And, uh, and then you want to sublimate the intelligence and the love to be totally focused on the self, on God, and to transcend the illusion of being a someone in a world doing something to that presence that is completely beyond the personal. Okay. We have a question from Oscar Bon. Mm, welcome, Oscar. He says, Namaste Shunyamurti. Can physical constant pain be a way to liberation? Mm. I sleep very little but interact three to four hours a day. Every day instead of suffering insomnia. It's a very difficult path, but yes, if you can meditate in the midst of the, the body's pain, you can become detached from the interpretation of what the nerve impulses are communicating to the brain from being felt as pain. And you can recognize it simply to be information that the nerves are sending to be received. And you can be in such a state where you say, I've got the information, thanks. You don't need to send me those nerve impulses anymore. And you can get to the point where you become the master over this uh, bodily uh, structural nervous system way of functioning to be able to shift uh, its functioning so that what has been pain will be reconfigured as bliss. And by realizing you're not the body, by, by, but you have to completely end all desire uh, to function as a bodily being to transcend that and to live in the, uh, the self that is bodiless will enable you then to use the body in the most effective way and become a great teacher for others who have bodies that are also producing pain and be able to teach them how to turn that pain also into peace and joy and bliss through the transformation of your relationship to the nervous system and the body identity and to make a total connection with the source of bliss that is then able to be incarnated and to fill the body with such light and such power and such transcendent bliss that the phenomenal uh, nervous system itself is uh, transmuted into a new form of functioning that will serve you at the highest level. So I hope that you will engage in that and come back for another round of meditation here and we will work on that together. Okay, we're getting toward the end of our satsang. Are there any other burning questions that anyone has in local space here? Yes. Last one. Um, lately in my meditation practice, it's been very peaceful and blissful, eyes closed, but as soon as I open my eyes, it's like 
ego chatter and projection and the opposite. So today I was thinking, well, maybe I should meditate with my eyes open, and that that would be helpful, but I thought you might have a... Yeah, I think meditating with eyes open is very good. In fact, meditating always while you're working and walking around and whatever you're doing, yes, absolutely. Uh, in, in fact, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, of doing some uh, open-eyed meditation guiding here uh, in the next couple of days. So, uh, yes, I think it's a good practice. At the ashram where I spent a lot of time in India, it was always open-eyed meditation. They didn't let you close your eyes, you know, you'd be hit for that. Because uh, it's much more uh, easy to fall asleep or to fall into reverie and fantasies with your eyes closed. On the other hand, uh, with the eyes closed, it's also, if you are really dedicated to meditate, easier to withdraw from the distractions that your eyes will produce in the world. So uh, very often those who meditate with eyes open will stare at a candle flame or at some particular point in order to not have uh, the eyes wandering around looking at things and then thinking about what they're seeing. So you have to be very... Uh, let's say, one-pointed in your internalized focus if you meditate with the eyes open. So it, it requires uh, perhaps more internal discipline to keep the mind silent when there are all of these things to think about or comment on subvocally. So ultimately, uh, for some people with the eyes open, it'll be harder, others it'll be easier. But uh, try it both ways until your, your life is a meditation, regardless of whether your eyes are open or not, or even whether you're awake or asleep. Okay. Do we have any more online questions? Other than from Didi or Keela. They've had their quota. Isn't there anyone else with a question? There's one from Hamid, I believe. I haven't had the chance to read it yet, but I'll just read the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Blessing, blessings, Shunyamurti, awareness of absolute is recognized and the mind is yuged to it. I think that means yoked, maybe. Yet from time to time, the deep entangler wirings of the mind, which produces the knot of false patterns, perception, and identity still operate. Is it like a periodic eclipse gripping awareness to a lower realm and pretending to be the orbiter of reality? This fluctuation interferes with one's higher purpose to leave eternally in full power of truth and service. What is the most powerful practice to once and for all turn the ego mind into a total subservient of supreme being? Well, so you accurately understand it, Hamid, uh, which is uh, a, uh, an oscillation between ego consciousness and soul consciousness. And there hasn't yet been a conscious, determined decision to let the ego die, to be free of ego and to remain in the soul and in the self. Uh, this decision needs to be made fully, completely, rigorously, and uh, determinedly without uh, backing off or giving in to the ego's temptations. 
And uh, if that is done, then you will be free of this. But if you want to know the fastest means of doing it, it would be a, a surrendering of your life to a community of a, of a spiritual sort that would uh, take away the option of being able to uh, indulge in ego consciousness and would, uh, would have a sufficiently rigorous dharma and program of service and of study and of uh, transformational uh, practices and individual inner work to make sure that that sanskara or tendency to fall back into the ego was uh, completely eliminated. But the reason I think that, that there will be hesitation in following that advice is the ego itself not wanting to give up its sovereignty, its luxury of being able to do whatever it wants to do, and uh, of wanting to, uh, to maintain the option uh, to enjoy the, uh, the pleasures and, and the suffering, the jouissance of ego consciousness. Uh, at some point, when you're really done with that, then you will be willing to make a surrender of the illusory sovereignty of living a, a life alone and separate from community and realize that the real service begins when uh, you are willing and able to give your life to the benefit of others, of all beings, and uh, to uh, live in accord with a dharma that uh, eliminates the uh, ability of the ego to uh, raise its ugly head and disturb the bliss of the self. Blessings, Hamid. <laughs> okay, I hope this has been useful for people and that um, everyone is uh, gaining the maturity, the insight, the wisdom, the power, the, the joy of self-liberation and recognizing the urgency of doing it while we still have a world that is not totally in chaos, but recognize that the advance of the horsemen of the apocalypse is happening quickly and that those who seek liberation before uh, the flood rises too high and want to find Noah's Ark in order to have that spiritual refuge in which liberation can be safely attained should make their decision and act quickly to be able to gain the option and the support necessary to go through the time of tribulations which this planet is now facing. Blessings to everyone and may the force be with you. Mm -hmm.